Okay, can you can you give me a test? Sure. Um, and <clears throat> we'll see as I get going whether or not I project well enough, but I'll, I'll keep in mind that, that I'm actually talking past you to a <laughs> larger space. Yes. Yeah. Does that work fairly well? It's it's working. If you could get a little bit closer, I think we could get some bigger, some uh, sound waves that are... So these are chords that I've used to practice with a band, and you don't need them to be this long when you're setting up a podcast. Right. So let's see. I I don't necessarily need to be speaking directly at the mic. In fact, that's great. um, So if it's off to the side just a little bit, how's that? That's perfect. Okay. Yeah, as long as you're not here. No. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, I thought that maybe before we jump into questions and jump into this, that we mm-hmm. could actually take three deep breaths. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we do that? Right. Yeah. orientation calls with the new group coming in so I've been getting them to do the the, the nose wiggling and the, and the deep breaths. Oh yeah, we should do that too. Yeah. Nose wiggle. Yeah. So I've been doing lots of that. Okay, so you're warmed up. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, um, it's been it's been really quite um, it's been quite a joy to come to know you and to not know not just you but your family mm, and and right, I, right. I really see these these intersections that have happened you know over the last few years mm-hmm. um, as being more meaningful now because of how these relationships have evolved mm-hmm. and with you know, like your your son-in-law, um, you know, has become an unlikely friend of mine right. <laughs> because we're working on a project together. Right. And uh, we've come to know each other in in kind of the deepest ways that our, our, our mm-hmm. friendship could could form. And and then so, you know, Celeste and Jay, you right. know, are our neighbors and right. and friends and and um, and Ian, your son. Mm-hmm. And his family live. We all live in the same neighborhood, right? Yeah. <laughs> so now, well, I mean, we're we're bumping into each other and we're involved in each other's lives. In fact, yesterday, mm-hmm. it was it was no, it was two days ago. I um, I ran into Ian and Christine uh-huh. on the uh-huh. sidewalk, right? And and uh, I was able to talk to Ian, and he asked me about Bright Future Now because mm-hmm. I just finished it. And he said, "Well, you know, what do you think?" Mm-hmm. Of the course, and I was like, "Wow, I really loved it!" Mm-hmm. And and uh, and and I felt like 
it has it's impacted me and it's continued to kind of open up these different uh, ways of, of thinking and um, ways to apply mm-hmm. the work yep. in practical ways. Mm-hmm. And, and and he said, "Well, um, you know, as you as you reflect on it, like, well, what are your impressions?" And I said, "Well, it's really given me context." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and after I walked away, I realized that oh, con- context is what you're all about right is providing context in your organization is mm-hmm. context.org and right. and um so i was kind of giddy as i walked away thinking <laughs> oh it's all coming together right and and uh robert's course and his work is all about context and that's actually how it has impacted me mm-hmm. personally um so yeah i just wanted to oh and 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 we spent thanksgiving together Right, right. What it was three, four, something like that. Three, I, four I can't years ago. I remember how many years ago, but yes, yeah. But, but you were great. in in my family room, and we yeah had Thanksgiving together. That's great. And I remember talking to you, and you were talking about doing some talks. Mm-hmm. You were like, "Okay, I'm doing some talks and stuff." Right. What are you talking about? And I remember after you were saying that, I'm like, "I have no idea what he's talking about." <laughs> <laughs> right. But now I have a way better understanding, and mm-hmm. and I realize like what, what the work that you're doing is extremely timely, extremely relevant. Um, it's important. I want to learn it more mm-hmm. and continue to you know practice the work that you've presented and and. And then share it with other people because I really think the application of the work is where um, it starts yeah. to uh, make an impact, especially in these times. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought that was just kind of like uh, when I was reflecting, I was on the ferry on the way over mm-hmm. here thinking about our paths and how they've mm-hmm. crossed before and now. Right. And now here I am in your home. Thank mm-hmm. you for right. inviting me in here. Yep. And um, we're on Whidbey Island. Mm-hmm. A place where many luminaries seem to end up. <laughs> You're not going to say anything about that. <laughs> um, yeah, but so as as kind of an opener, I I do want to um, get into your background a little bit. Sure. Um, and I know that some of this, uh, uh, if your website is great. You know, if you want to find out about you mm-hmm. and find out about your work, you've done a great job of of putting that out there for people. And I don't want to just regurgitate what's already out there, but mm-hmm. I do think that the way that you've outlined the um, the different phases of, mm-hmm. of your life right. uh, was really helpful. And if we could, you know, touch on those, I think it would give uh, people a nice introduction to who you are and how you landed um uh, what, what what brings you to the present now of kind right. of integrating? So um, the, your first sort of career mm-hmm. um, was an astrophysicist, right? Right, right. And you did you get you got your degree in Harvard at Princeton? At Princeton, yeah. Okay, all right. So you're a pretty smart person. <laughs> you got into Princeton, and you're studying astrophysics, right? Astro physics yeah well i did my undergraduate work at berkeley okay um and then my graduate work at princeton mm-hmm. and um 
I, I actually got my PhD in less than two years at Princeton. Okay. And at that point, Princeton was one of, uh, Princeton and Caltech were probably the two top uh, places to do theoretical physics and theoretical astrophysics. Okay. Um, so, so I'll, you know, I'll crawl a little bit and, and, <laughs> and say, yeah, I, I was doing pretty well. Uh, and the, my thesis took uh, Einstein's general relativity and um, created context for it. Curiously okay. Enough. <laughs> yeah. um, if you, in the physical sciences, you often have um, ways of understanding things that involve what are called differential equations that look at the, at the minute differences but from one spot to the next spot. And then what complements that are what are called boundary conditions. Okay. Um, and general relativity had differential equations for the gravitational field, but didn't have any boundary conditions. And so what I did was to come up with a, with a form mathematical formulation for how to include the boundary conditions um, that, would, that, would, that were then the partner to those differential equations that Einstein had developed. Uh, and that was good stuff. Uh, and Princeton was a great place to be working on that sort of thing. Um, and it, it, part of the, you know, I'm, so I'm crowing a little bit, but part of this is to indicate that early on I had the opportunity to be working with really world-class folks who, that I apprenticed with, mm -hmm. basically, and gave me a, a, a sense of how you really operate at that edge where things are not known yet. And so, you know, some people think of science and think of it as all structure and that sort of thing. But when you're a research scientist, especially in something like astrophysics, where what you are tr you're trying to stretch out into this dimly lit, barely perceivable um, edge of understanding hmm. and put everything that you currently know together with the little tiny bits of data that are coming in and see if you can't piece together a picture that lets you understand more of what is on that edge out there. Um, and, and I got to see the way in which the people who were really good at it knew how to take some new idea or new um, bit of data that came in or something like this and start off lovingly building up the picture. And then they would get to a certain point in the arc of that and then they would lovingly tear it apart again hmm. to, to uh, not not to tear it down but to they bring the a more critical perspective but they wouldn't bring a critical perspective in until they had formulated enough that it, that they'd given it a chance mm -hmm. if you know what I mean mm -hmm. and they were really they were just really good at being able to uh, to do that balance uh, of uh, of formulation, sense of possibilities, how can we make this work, and then let's look at the places it maybe doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, and are you, what's what's the difference between like um, astrology and astrophysics? Okay, good. <laughs> so uh, astrology has a very long history. Okay. And um, going back thousands and thousands of years, 
you know, the earliest civilizations you can find indications of, of astrology, and for that matter, in various um, indigenous peoples, it's not uncommon for them to have a certain knowledge of the stars, mm -hmm. and usually they have some um, of sense of how that goes. So that's a very, very ancient uh, tradition that gave birth to what we would now think of as astronomy. Mm -hmm. And astronomy is astronomer. It's naming of stars. Okay. Um, and that the Greeks got into that. Um, so, you know, it's sort of in the Western, but also uh, Muslim and uh, certainly Chinese. Um, they all identified what was up in the heavens and named things and had constellations. In the 20th century, starting probably in the late 19th century, but in the 20th century, as physics got to a deeper level of understanding, then there was the question of what is not just naming the stars, but trying to understand physically what's going on in the stars. Uh, one of the first places where what was being discovered in the laboratories about nuclear physics got applied in the larger world was trying to understand what's happening inside the centers of stars. Uh, so this is a long answer, but the, but uh, astrophysics is effectively 20th century and 21st century astronomy. Okay. You know, there's very little, I mean, we have so many ways that we can map out the skies now that that's, you know, mm -hmm. we don't need to do that anymore or, or we're continuing to do that, but it's all really into uh, the, the life of the field is now in astrophysics. And astrophysics is very much about taking what is known within the physical sciences and using that as a way to understand what's happening physically in stars and galaxies and planets, all of this stuff. Whereas astrology is looking at the Basically, it comes out of a metaphysics that sees more than just the physical aspects, so that you're looking at um, what people would describe as various energies associated with the different planets, mm -hmm. and then how those energies affect people at a psychological uh, kind of level, at a consciousness level. And there are certainly, you know, in some worldviews, it's nonsense. Mm -hmm. Because there's, you know, if, if you presume that the planets are only physical, then it doesn't make any sense. Uh, in other uh, metaphysics, if you assume that there's more going on on the planets than just what's there in the physical, then maybe it does make sense. I, I'm not going to, I'm just being observer here. Uh, yeah. But, but they're different. They're really different, uh, even though they both look towards the heavens. Mm -hmm. And did, did you land in one of those territories of thinking? Well, certainly, uh, my focus as, a, as an astrophysicist was on the physical stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's, that was the territory. Those were the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. That's the game that, that, that I played. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a delightful game. You know, it's, it's, I think it's one of the best intellectual games out there. Um, the in terms of something like astrology, I've never particularly gotten into astrology, mm -hmm. but I've gotten into understanding a lot of the approaches to consciousness that show up in a many different parts 
of the world and it, and human history, human culture, um, and have uh, you know, the best way for me to describe it is actually with an astrophysics metaphor. Okay, and that is signal and noise. Um, that when you're when you're uh, think of a radio telescope, mm-hmm. it's trying to discern radio signals coming from some galaxy that's billions of light years away that when it comes in to your instrument to your you know one of these big dishes this the signal comes in but at the same time there is a certain amount of radio static that happens in the earth's atmosphere Um, there is noise in the electronics of the receiver there are all kinds of different sources of um, noise, noise being the stuff you're not interested in, that add on to what's coming in from deep space. And so one of the things that uh, radio astronomers learn to do really well is to separate out the signal from that noise. Um, in the same way, when I look at a lot of the different uh, spiritual traditions and consciousness traditions, I always look at it as there's a mixture of signal and noise here. And uh, just like with the radio astronomers, because I see some noise, I don't throw the signal away. In fact, for me, that what I'm interested in is perceiving the signal and then throwing the noise away. Uh, so I don't necessarily take those traditions completely at face value, but um, I've seen enough to feel like there is potentially some interesting signal there. And I'm always interested in what's the signal. Well, that's a great metaphor. Uh, do you have an example that comes to mind with the tradition where you would say, okay, here's the noise and here's the signal? Well, so that actually gets into some of the the work that I'm doing with with Bright Future Now mm-hmm. and, and before that with the, the presentations. And I'll... I'll mm-hmm. Uh, mention the the what time is it presentation so yeah and i do want to get into that i don't want to get into um, i won't go deeply okay just to say that that most of the religions that developed in the last five thousand years Mm -hmm. are a mixture of support for the existing political structures that happened then with also a mixture of uh people's what I will call authentic spiritual experiences so the uh, and people would try to translate those spiritual experiences into terms that people you know 5,000 years ago 3,000 years ago 2,000 years ago could understand Mm -hmm. and so you have all of the this uh, in some sense you wind up having these images of divinity as the great warlord in the sky. Um, And uh, that is one way of looking at things, and to me is actually mostly noise. Um, And then you have experiences of deep connection and deep love uh, and other things of this sort that seem to me to be more signal. Um, So that's that's kind of an example. Mm -hmm. and one of our challenges at this point in history is to winnow out what's the signal and what's the noise. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That that helps. Yeah. Um, 
so back to Princeton. Yeah. Two two years you said you got your PhD. Yeah. Isn't that pretty accelerated? Don't PhDs generally take longer than that? Yeah. Yeah. And part of that was that when I was at Berkeley, actually my last year at Berkeley was um, effectively a first year of graduate study. Okay. Uh, I was in a kind of accelerated. They they. It's more cheeky stuff that. Um, Berkeley created a, um, I, and I even forget quite what the name is, but it was a, a an award for outstanding undergraduate, and I was the first. Great. Um, and and they basically said you're doing great stuff. We we want to move you along faster than what the normal track. We're going to ship you off to Princeton. And then we'll ship you off to Princeton. So did, did you actually go to Princeton and, and study there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was there for 2 years. Okay. But um, yeah. Um where did your love for science and particularly the stars and space come from? Yeah. You know, that's um so this is where I should mention a little bit about my family background. Okay. Um, my, because it's this interesting mixture of things that still shows up in me. My family had um, was quite involved with the um, the Episcopal Church, uh, which and, and the liberal side of the Episcopal Church in in that sense there. Their religion was all about love your neighbor um, and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. and, and not about beat your neighbor over the head with a book. Um, and at the same time, uh, my my father was a mechanical engineer. Uh, my grandfather, who was um, who became he was a a missionary in China, um, and when he he went to China in 1905, um, it was. For his generation, it was the equivalent of the Peace Corps. Um, and he went there as, as an educator and uh, wound up establishing a college there um, and became a bishop. Uh, but he was also fascinated with um, uh, electronics. And apparently when he was set to retire, the, uh, a number of the Chinese that he'd been working with uh, said, you know, we can always find another bishop. But who else is going to repair our radios? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, and when I was a teenager, one of the things I, I did develop this interest in us in the stars mm -hmm. somehow. Um, I had first gotten an interest in physics and felt it was too confining, so I went for something bigger. Yep. Um, the universe. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> why not? Uh, and. Uh, I wound up grinding a telescope mirror and, and making a telescope for myself. Okay. And it wasn't until after I had done that that I learned that my father and my grandfather had both ground telescope mirrors. Come on. No, seriously. So it was in the genes. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Didn't pass it on, though. You know. Not yet. Neither of my kids have done that. But we'll see about some of the grandkids. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. So, so then you're um, you're studying um, astrophysics. Yeah, I got that right. Yeah, <laughs> and then there comes this transition time, right? Where 
you're 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 studying everything out mm-hmm. beyond you're studying the edges and the boundaries and then your focus shifted yeah but it's not as out of the blue as it might sound mm-hmm. because you know as as i indicated i i grew up in a really service oriented family mm-hmm. for one thing um and when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, this was in the 60s, by the way. Okay, um, great. Just to now, what, what a this. fantastic time to be there. Yeah, yeah. I was part of the free speech movement and mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. Um, the, I effectively had an, a minor in anthropology. Okay. So at the same time I had my major in astronomy, I was really fascinated by, by um, the anthropology. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get out of the A's, you know, the, the I was probably <laughs> <laughs> going to do anatomy next. I'm going to choose that one. Right, yeah. Uh, but so I, I early on had a really strong interest uh, and I, uh, in what was happening socially and politically. In fact, I would say all my life I've had this sense of somehow having a real close connection to what, whatever it was that was happening at this point mm-hmm. in, in history. Um, I, I would always read the New York Times and as a teenager, you know. I mean, how many teenagers do that sort of thing? At least when I was going through <laughs> high school, not that many. I didn't. Um, <laughs> but that was just, you know, where I was at. Uh-huh. So, um, and the, the 60s and then into the 70s, mm-hmm. um, increasingly I felt torn mm-hmm. uh, and with uh, with my wife Diane and then with uh, our first child Ian uh, we actually spent some I, I kind of wove in and out of doing astrophysics I wasn't just on a steady track okay uh, so we spent some time uh, with um, a spiritual group in New Mexico uh, during the same, I was going back and forth between being a, um, an, a, a an assistant professor of astronomy at the University of Minnesota, okay, and then going down to New Mexico uh-huh. and then back to Minnesota. Um, and, what was the group in New, Me- New Mexico? Well, I don't think any. It was a small group that I don't think anybody. Nobody knows. Good, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was not the Lama Foundation. Well, I mean, we that we were sort of near that but uh-huh. uh, it was not that uh, um, so it, there was this mixture going on and I had these multiple pulls and by the time the middle of the 70s came along it was clear to me that uh, somehow I was being pulled in, not to con- continue with the astrophysics although mm-hmm. I sort of tried to, to to see if I could have both but it, it didn't really work uh, so we went and built our own uh, owner-built. That is, you know, I milled a bunch of the wood that went into the house. It was that level. Of, really? Um, so Where? At Squim. Okay. Uh, on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, Diane's parents had some land and said, you want to build, you can come here and build. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't have all that much money, but we were willing to do it. So we built this solar-heated house and In the 70s? Yeah, mid-70s. A solar-heated house. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that pretty advanced for that time? Yeah, but... (laughs) 
were lots of other people who were doing it too, uh -huh. but um, but it wasn't. It certainly was not common. Mm -hmm. We had a composting toilet and you know a bunch of things that were. Uh, if you if you read the the whole Earth Review and Coevolution Quarterly, then you'd be tuned into those things. Okay. If you weren't, then it was totally weird. Mm -hmm. And, and so we did that at a personal scale and um, were, as we like to say, we're living lightly. Mm -hmm. uh, we, our family of three was getting by on about $5,000 a year. Whoa. And a lot of, but, you know, put some inflation into that today, that would probably be about 15000 a year. Mm -hmm. um, but still, um, it, and we were living pretty well. Um, in, in our terms. So Ian's grown up in this? Yes. Okay. Yeah. This gives me a little bit of context for Ian, too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and Celeste, too. But Ian, okay. But Ian had 10 years more of it okay. than uh, Celeste did. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we got that started, and then it wasn't... Uh, and that's the point that I like to say that the stars could wait, but the planet couldn't. Okay. And uh, in the end of the 70s, in 1979, we decided to go beyond our own household, and we created a local community networking organization called the North Olympic, because we were on the north side of the Olympic Peninsula. Yeah. North Olympic Living Lightly Association. Okay. As a way to tie together people with interests in solar heating and organic gardening and alternative health measures and other things where... We saw all of these pockets of people who didn't seem to recognize they were all, all part of the same cultural movement. Mm -hmm. and, and we said, hello. And so we started holding classes and put out a little newsletter and created this local networking thing. Mm -hmm. and, and that was actually the, the 501c3, the nonprofit organization that is still Context Institute. Okay. started as the North Olympic Living Lightly Association. North Olympic Living Lightly. NOLA. NOLA. Yeah. Neat. So then you started creating networks. Yeah. This was sort of like the beginning of your your, your work that you're still doing today, right. which is right. um, not only catalyzing but supporting yeah. networks. Right. And I point this out to point out that I'm in some ways a slow learner. I'm I'm still stuck in the same grooves that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, two year PhD, right. slow learner. Right. <laughs> so then, um, so then, Context Institute is formed, and and you're doing that work uh, for how long? Well, we did NOLA for mm, three or four years. Okay. Uh, but the newsletter that we were putting out, we kept getting requests for it from further and further away. Okay. First it was other places in Washington, then it was California, then mm -hmm. it was Europe. Um, and that started to give me a clue that maybe what we had to offer had a had a role that was broader than just the North Olympic Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And and I was getting tired of doing a six page um, monthly newsletter on a selectric typewriter. Oh wow. Um, it, it, yeah, uh, ancient. And I got a short-term job that uh, where I was doing some future-oriented studies uh, and got introduced at that point to an Apple II computer. 
And so we made the big shift of I actually purchased an Apple II, which was a stretch given our our economy. 5K right. a year. We, we, when I was doing the work, we got a little more uh -huh. uh, income than that. Uh, and switched from being s locally focused to all of a sudden globally. Um, and that's when we created, in context, a quarterly of humane, sustainable culture. Okay. Um, and that was a 64-page uh, quarterly. So it was, it was bigger, mm -hmm. but, it, but its intention was to reach out. And we did... Um, it wasn't long before we had all 50 states, and mm, I forget exactly how many, but it was like 50 different countries that it was going out to. Wow. Even though the, the subscriptions eventually got up to around 8,000, mm -hmm. which is a, you know, a relatively small number, but we were, we were out there on the edge, and we had a lot of authors that people might recognize today, like Joanna Macy and Amory and Hunter Lovins and uh, Lester Brown mm -hmm. uh, from World Watch, and just a number of, um, well, the Vicki Robin, Joe Dominguez, you know, all of uh, Dwayne Elgin, there, a whole variety of folks who back then had less exposure. Uh -huh. And so In Context was a place where those voices got a chance. Uh, Dana Meadows uh, with the Limits to Growth. It was a, it, uh, it was a place where the, the growing sustainability movement mm -hmm. in, uh, got a chance to have a voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I want to say that for us in... When we started in context, in the first issue came out in January of '83. Okay. Um, this is before the UN was talking about sustainable development. I like to say it was before most people could pronounce sustainable. Uh, <laughs> um, and we looked at sustainable culture as a whole system. Uh, and I like to say there are no environmental problems, there are only environmental symptoms of human problems. Um, and we looked at it very much in a systemic way. It wasn't until 89, 90 or so that the big environmental lobbying organizations discovered the word sustainable. And between those organizations and the media shifted the, the notion of sustainable to environmental sustainability. Uh, before that, it was a much broader concept and, and much more about human systems, although human systems in relationship to the natural world Mm -hmm. was an important component of that. Um, uh, so, um, and that's really all we've, again, being slow learners, we've stayed with that thread that what we're really focused on is culture. Mm -hmm. um, that what, what we're doing to the environment is a symptom of a culture that's not working right. That's pretty powerful. I mean, that, that changes the lens. Mm-hmm. And you're still doing whole systems. I mean, the whole yeah. systems change is still right. kind of the the frame. Right. Um, yeah, there are no environmental problems. Right. Only human problems, or human. There, there, there are no environmental problems. There, are, there, are, there are only environmental symptoms. Environmental symptoms of human problems. Okay. Um, 
And, you know, there's a lovely current illustration of that. Um, Paul Hawken, who is another one of our authors, um, has put together this drawdown project where he got a hundred different um, decarbonization solutions together, mm-hmm. 80 of which are sufficient have sufficiently long track records that you can really do economic analysis on them. Okay. The other 20 were promising but didn't quite have that depth to them. And they put them together, documented them, and shown how with... You know, if, if we decided to do it, we could not only stabilize our um, our greenhouse gases, but we could draw them down. Uh, you know, technically, it's not just a matter of, well, f- perhaps we could do. We're already doing it. It's, this is proven stuff. Mm-hmm. So at, a, at that kind of technical level, there is no problem. The, the, the barriers to doing it are all institutional, political, all of these human um, and aspects. Uh-huh. Um, it's not like whole new things need to be invented. Right. So you can see a path to getting out of this. Right. But the culture doesn't support it. Right. So therein lies the work. Exactly. So what happened to the magazine? Well, we, we published it up until uh, 1995. Okay. And then... Um, it, it one of the curious things that happened in the in the nineties, uh, in the early whenever it was, I guess the ninety two election when Clinton was elected. Uh-huh. So in the eighties, you've got Reagan. Yeah, and there are lots and lots of people who are unhappy with Reagan, and and that actually wound up boosting our subscriptions. Okay. Once Clinton got in, people say, "Oh, it's handled. I don't need to think about this anymore." Uh-huh. And so we weren't able to keep building subscriptions. Yeah. Um, so we basically ran into uh, economic difficulties. Uh-huh. And uh, at that point, I was experimenting with, uh, I, I was developing plans for t- going out of paper print and onto the web. Okay. So this is 95. So you already kind of felt the, the shift happening. And right. You're like, we need to. We need to change this and right. move in this direction. Right. And we can we can keep going, but um, in a more economical way, and but that didn't didn't come to pass. Um, and had some organizational upheaval that I don't need to particularly go into. Um, uh, so the in the in the mid '90s, basically we stopped publishing in context. Okay. Um, but we moved all of the articles we had like about 900 articles uh, that we moved all onto the web. Okay. And we're still getting 1,000 visitors a day. Today. Today. Wow. And have been for the, um, what's effectively 20 years. Yeah. Um, to the material. So they're obviously still relevant. Seems to be. Yeah. Um, where where are they on the web? Context.org. Okay, they're there. Yeah, okay. they're all there. Um, and you know, we have people all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, you know, ironically, in about a week's time, we reach as many people as we had subscribers. Wow. Um, and that's every week. Right, instead of every quarter. Right. Hmm. 
Um, so the uh, the resource still is still serving. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you go through that transition, um, and, and then, and, and so part of that transition. So the, the in the in the last half of the nineties was a deconstruction time for me. Okay. So we we stopped doing the magazine, and then in '97, um, uh, Diane, my wife, uh, developed a brain tumor, hmm. and uh, she, I wound up being her with my daughter Celeste. The two of us were her primary caregivers for the last six months of her life. She died in January of '98. Um, How old was Celeste? Uh, she was like 16 at huh. that point, and Diane was 50, um, let's see, 53, 52, 53. Um, so the, what had been my work and what had been my life partner mm-hmm. were just gone. Um, and I was a single parent with a teenage daughter, and we managed Wow, but it was. Um, I, I I like to say in some ways it was my Katrina, you know, sort mm-hmm. of everything, the things that had been there just came in and got blown away. Well, on the uh, on your bio, you call it the dark night of the soul. Yep. And um, you know, I've seen or I've heard that that term you know used before for the journey you know mm-hmm. when you're on the journey and then you end up in the in this place where there's the dark night of the soul where you're brought to the depths of who you are as a human and that could be you know in an ego death mm-hmm. or um, everything that you once knew is now uh, in question right and where do we go from here um, and and your whole sort of foundation of purpose and meaning is kind of shaken and uh, stirred up, and and then um, what emerges is the the next phase, and it often comes with uh, a more expansive consciousness, um, a deeper sense of meaning, or maybe. You know, that feeling of when you're actually alone by yourself, you feel met. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what was that experience like for you um, emerging? Yeah, it feels to me like I definitely went through a process that helped with some of my rough edges mm-hmm. um, and, and extending up until uh, 20, I'm going to say 2012, 2013, something of that sort, mm-hmm. but a number of different steps along the way with that. So it wasn't as though I went completely quiet. Um, uh-huh. I was in, in um, 1999, I spent 
a number of months over at the Findhorn Foundation. Uh, I should say the Findhorn Community. Okay. Uh, because it's more than the foundation, and I was, uh, I helped them. There's, there's the foundation as an organization, but the community itself is actually much larger, and the community had kind of slowly grown up around the foundation, mm -hmm. but there was no formal structure for the community as a whole, and so I helped them put together their first um, community-level governance structure. Okay. Um, and then around 2000, I went and spent some time down in New Zealand, um, and both of these with Celeste, my daughter, along with me. So really? She, I didn't know that she went there to yeah. Findhorn and Yeah, so she New got Zealand the chance to um, have the... You know, have that kind of experience as well. Yeah, uh, and then in in two thousand and four, I got asked to uh, apply for a vacancy on the Langley City Council. Okay, um, local small, especially small local uh, city governments will often have people who either get elected or have gotten appointed and one reason or another decide that that they want to they need to step off mm -hmm. and that leaves a vacancy and then that gets filled um, in a place Langley just has a thousand people so it's a tiny town um, and it's not uncommon for the first step onto the council to come through not election but through appointment okay uh, an invitation to apply yeah an invitation to apply and I did and I was um, appointed to a seat on the council, and okay. then went through subsequently two elections after that. Okay. Uh, so I was on the council for a total of seven and a half years. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and got really deeply into that because I saw that as an opportunity to apply a number of the uh, sustainable community things mm -hmm. that I've been working on. You know, can I actually get some of that to land here in this government? Yeah. 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 And some of it did and some of it didn't. Um, uh, but I all in that time I also spent some time um, as I, I was on the board of the Washington Association of Cities, so I got a chance to understand what was happening at a statewide level and participate in that also. So that gave me, I think, a useful immersion into not only government mm -hmm. but also appreciating how those bureaucracies work because I haven't spent. You know, my, I, I've been this sort of social entrepreneur, mm -hmm. doing small-scale things, networking, all this other stuff, but I, it's not like I'd spent a lot of time in larger bureaucracy. Yeah, you were working on the boundaries, the boundaries right. of space, the boundaries of sustainability, creating these networks of people who are thinking way ahead of mainstream society, and now you're plunked into the middle of mainstream society. <laughs> So that was good. I think that's that uh, that point is totally relevant, though. I mean, with yeah. so much change and um, upheaval in in our government right now, I mean, it's on everyone's consciousness. So right. I'd, I'd love for you to talk about your experience, especially coming from with, with your history and then landing right there. Yeah. Well, it was some of the things that I learned are that. There are a lot more constraints on you as an elected official than people may realize. Hmm. 
you know, it looks like you get elected and then you're a decision maker and all that good stuff. Um, especially in this local city government piece, not a, not necessarily a big city like Seattle, but, but the smaller cities where the people who are on the council are essentially volunteers or at least part time. Mm -hmm. The, the, the people who are the staff are much more influential in terms of what actually happens. Hmm. Um, if the staff like what you're providing, they're happy to have you, you know, pr promote it. If they don't like it, they know that they will outlast you. Hmm. And there are all kinds of bureaucratic ways to make things not happen. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I got to appreciate the degree to which the local staff is, is really important. And at a local level, in many ways, we have technocratic government instead of democratic government with democratic window dressing. Hmm. When you say local staff, well, what's an example of a position? A uh, planning director, okay. uh, uh, police chief. You uh, work for the city. You work for the city. Okay. Um, You're not elected. Okay. You, and you are, you are uh, technically, you are hired by the mayor. But what I saw with, I, I worked with two different mayors, and I was, I was really engaged, so I really mm -hmm. got to see the inside of this. And in many ways, when the requirements for being a mayor are as great for a town of 1,000 people in the legal sense as they are for being the mayor of Seattle. Hmm. Um, I won't say it's totally equivalent. It isn't. But there, the challenge for people who are coming into that role is there's a really steep learning curve. And so it's understandable that very quickly the mayor discovers their dependency on the staff. Mm -hmm. And in a certain sense, the staff all of a sudden becomes their important constituency. So while it looks like the staff is under the authority of the mayor, in practice, that isn't the way it works. Ooh, fascinating. Um, so uh, it's... You know, and the staff people that we had here in Langley were, they definitely acted, I think, in, by and large, in the interests of the city. Um, I, you know, they, I, I, I want to give appropriate appreciation mm -hmm. for them. Um, but it was, you know, they were running the show. Okay. Um, and, and quietly and, you know, sort of, in a certain sense, behind the scenes. Yeah. But, um, but nevertheless, they were successfully running the show. Mm -hmm. So that was, and I can imagine translating that to like the federal government level right. and the federal bureaucracies, um, where there's a tremendous amount that happens at the at that level. That, and I can, I can appreciate some of the, what we would often think of as right-wing um, frustration and anger with the regulation state. Uh -huh. um, and the bureaucracies can be a pretty blunt instrument, um, not because of the people. I mean, the people in them often are trying the best they can, but the structure isn't necessarily wonderful. So it helped me to see the some of the deeper issues that we're going to have to deal with 
in terms of the structural changes that okay. I have to make. And it's not like I've got great solutions right now, mm-hmm. but I'm uh, but I'm more aware of the the problems. Well, in Bright Future Now, you talk about systems literacy, right? So I'm sure this uh, plays into kind of the foundation for what right. you created there. Yeah. Well, another fascinating thing for me about city government was the degree to which there were no visuals. We were dealing with complex issues and trying to do it all with language. Okay. Um, and you know from Bright Future Now that, mm-hmm. that, that that's recipe for trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the tradition within law and legislation and everything else is that it will all be done through language. Mm-hmm. Um, and language is limited. Yeah, because there's all that decoding, right? Right. That, that happens yeah. with language. And then to rely on your memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how often are, are, is, is our memory accurate right. enough? And then you're making decisions that affect other people. I mean, you can run right. into a whole yeah. mess of issues. And one of the things that it, uh, turns out, too, and I don't know particularly a solution for this, but the... Here in Washington State, uh, there's what's called the Open Public Meetings Act, which is has a lot of good sense behind it, which uh, requires that um, elected officials, council members, can't have any kind of uh, quorum uh, except in a public meeting, in an announced, advertised public meeting. So that means, th- and you can't even do it what's called a serial meeting. So, for instance, I can't, it, as, a, as a council member, I couldn't call one person and have a conversation with them and then call another person and then call a third person. We had five people on the council, so as soon as you hit three, you hit a quorum. Um, if I talked to two other council members about the same thing, then uh, without it being in an open public meeting, I was violating the Open Public Meetings Act. So there was no opportunity for that um, safe space to explore ideas. We were simply um, a kind of focus group, if you will, that could respond to what was presented to us. But we couldn't be collaboratively creative. Oh, that's frustrating. So, I mean, I understand the intention behind it. Yeah. Like, hey, you're, you're working for yeah. and on behalf of the right. people, therefore, right. you can't do anything in secret. Right. However, we're going to create a structure that disallows you from engaging any sort of meaningful depth or, um, you know, developing trust, relationship, right. all those things that actually uh, create meaning and understanding right. Right. <laughs> at a deeper level. Yeah. Uh, we... In, in our project in Seattle, I mean, we experienced some of that too, and especially with the um, um, wh- what is it? the public disclosure? Yeah, right. Law. Yeah. Where all city communication is available to the public. Mm-hmm. So, how this is abused, at least in our scenario, was that um, you know we're pushing a project through, and the people who don't want it to come through, make public disclosure requests, which they're allowed to do right. as often as they like, right? which which they um, 
submit to the city, and then the city has to respond to those in a certain in a certain yep. amount of time, right? And what it does is it bogs down everybody on the government because what what do they have to do is they have to pull all of their documentation, emails, communication, and print these documents and then submit them right. to whoever right. re- requested it. Right. And it it frustrates the the people who are working right within the city because they're not getting anything done. Yep. Because they show up in the morning and they've got another one of these things on their desk and they're like, oh, instead of working on this, I have to go through all of my emails and print all of this stuff out. Right. Because it's the law. Yeah. And you can be sure that it definitely constrains what the, those staff people, in a, in a, what they're trying to accomplish positively, they are very cautious about what goes into anything that could become public request. Right. So then all of a sudden you're not willing to talk about <laughs> What you're supposed to be talking about. Right. 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 So, <laughs> so then you don't get anything done. Right. Yeah. Nothing changes. So that's, I, I, um, and, and maybe this is sort of a good wrap up relative to the politics piece. Yeah. But, but I want to say that another thing that I saw was how easy it was to stymie things. Hmm. Um, that it's, it forces government to be at best at the middle of the bell curve and generally lagging. Hmm. So it's the idea of having government be a driver for cultural change. Uh, it's not the way it works. Yeah. Um, not the, you know, most of the time. If you want to, if you really want to move cultural change forward outside the political arena is much more fruitful. Mm-hmm. Before we move on, can you name at least one success <laughs> that you had within government? Yes, yes. Uh, so um, in local governments control land use. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, we have in Washington State what's called a comprehensive plan. In other places, it's called a general plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and these need to be updated every so often. It's usually a task for um, a a group of, you know, maybe four or five citizens plus the planner who just yeah. do it in a regular way. Well, um, so what I did was to organize a different way to go about updating the comprehensive plan. We had a group that involved 100 people, um, it broken up into various different subgroups, focusing on different things, and we pulled it all together and, and um, came up with a, a comprehensive plan that had a lot more sustainable community aspects to it. Um, and there were, you know, there were some things in the comprehensive plan that never quite landed. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, but there were a lot of things that did. And in any case, we had a much broader um, public engagement. And mm-hmm. Remember, we're a town of 1,000 people. So having 100 a, a people involved um, in something is a much more significant level of involvement than right. having uh, just a handful. So you changed the process, made it more inclusive yeah. and more sustainable. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, both changed the process and came out with an outcome that was um, had a lot more forward-looking sustainability aspects to it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about you 
and uh, what I learned from Bright Future Now is that you're really good at um, looking at some sort of ambiguous thing or way of uh, that something is accomplished and then creating a structure that makes a lot more sense. Mm. <laughs> you know, the mapping. Mm-hmm. You know, you have an, a, a really great ability to map things out mm-hmm. um, and to show kind of the flow of information and, um, you know, to your point about language you know mm-hmm. being the main communicator well map mapping is another form of communication right. that is extremely helpful did you happen to map out your your process change for yeah we did yeah in various ways yeah <laughs> uh and had you know all kinds of community meetings with lots of visuals and flip yes. charts and you know all that stuff um yeah that's great. So then seven and a half years, and then were you starting to work on Bright Future Now? No, not not at that point. Okay. Um, the What does go back a little further was that the, the foundation stones, Okay. the ideas for those, um, and I can describe them a little bit more, but the idea for that really came up, around, I think, around 2000, mm-hmm. if I remember back. It's somewhere in there. Um, I, I got the outline. At that point, the outline in two thousand. Yeah. Okay. But hadn't, um, which I've tweaked a little bit, but it's p- still pretty much the same outline. Uh, and that's interesting because that's pretty close to the Dark Knight of the Soul. Yeah. Two years after. Yeah. I mean, it was right. You in, know, it was in that period of time. Hmm. Um. And and one of the things that I will that that I will say to s- go back to, you know, when Diane died it was clear to me that a part of my life died. Hmm. Um, and I, I can remember sitting there feeling, I can either decide, okay, I'm, you know, this is now, you know, I'm winding down, I'm done. Or I can go into effectively another incarnation in the same body. You know, I can take on a new a new wave, a new life, and I chose to take on a new life. Um, but it was, you know, it was definitely that kind of. Uh, I had to acknowledge and let go of parts of me that had gone. Um, but there was fresh stuff that came in, mm-hmm. and, and it. And for a few years, and when it was both Dark Knight of the Soul and I gave myself permission to be a kid again. Hmm. I, I told myself, you know, you're going you're gonna to grow into this new life. You've got to let yourself be a kid. Smile. Smile and, and be playful mm-hmm. and, and, you know, do things because they're interesting, not because of what the result will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was good. And then the foundation stones. Yeah, and that showed up just kind of intuitively. Well, let's get into it. Okay. Let's get into the foundation stones. Yeah, so let me describe them. And it's, okay. And it's really, you know, I, I spent, it was like 13 years editing in context. Okay. And we covered all kinds of different topics, everything from economics to art and ceremony to education to land use to, it was culture as broadly as an anthropologist would look at it. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I'd gotten to see lots and lots of actually quite promising new directions. Uh, 
and again and again bump into the way in which the problem was humans. Uh, <laughs> so I felt that I didn't want to just start edit, you know, I didn't want to do in context again, but I wanted to draw together kind of what I learned out of that process. And so the foundation stones were intended as uh, that kind of thing. And they're, it's not a blueprint. It's, the foundation stone's name is because it's stuff that's an invitation to build on. Mm. But at least if you use these, you can feel pretty sure that you've got a, a good foundation that you're building on. So the, the, there's and what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, are you talking about life in general? Um, yeah, if I get into it, it'll be a little... It, yes, okay. but, but it's, uh, when I describe them, I think it'll help. Okay. Uh, so there's seven different topic areas. Okay. The first topic area is, is called what time is it? It's about where are we in history? What, what's been the dynamics of culture? Um, and and I, I won't describe more because I want to stay at a high level at okay. this point. The second foundation stone is something that has been called, that I call tools for the journey. And we've got two pieces in that right now. One is human operating system literacy, which is about our psychology and you know bringing in modern neuroscience and that sort of thing. And the second one is systems literacy. So those are the, if we understand our, our, our psychological operating system, if you will, and understand the way systems work, then we understand an enormous aspect of the world. Um, this is kind of like taking the magic that was there in astrophysics, where if you understood 20th century astronomy, you could actually go out and understand an enormous amount of what was happening in the universe. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, if you understand human psychology and systems, then a lot becomes apparent. Isn't it... Uh it seemed to me that the human operating system was beyond psychology. Yeah, <laughs> it, you know, it was it was a, a somatic um, understanding too. Yes, an embodied understanding of the right. human, not just right. what's going on in the head, but what's right. going on in other places. The, the whole, the as mm -hmm. whole beings, yes, whole beings. Yeah, yeah right. Um, so in that sense, it's it's the whole human operating system. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so that's. Those are the tools for the journey. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one that we haven't gotten to yet, but I still, my intention is still there, uh, is something I call how connected is the universe? And with this one, what I want to do is to get in with my science hat, mm -hmm. but look at the, you know, the empirical work that looks at... Uh, consciousness mm -hmm. and connections in consciousness uh, because there's there's actually quite a bit of really good stuff we've that the natural sciences were born in a traumatic time they were born in the midst of the Inquisition you know think back to Galileo being forced to deny what he knew mm -hmm. um, and others being burned at the stake and all this sort of thing and it's kind of like the, the emerging natural scientists and the Catholic hierarchy eventually came to this resolution uh, where they, they divided up the, the territory and blamed the witches. <laughs> uh, so the scientists said, 
we're only going to focus on what's externally observable. We're not going to deal at all with what's happening inside people. We will call that subjective, and we'll look down on it, and we'll say that's a no-no, consciousness is out. We're only going to look at what's objective out there, Mm -hmm. not realizing that their perceptions of what was out there depended upon their psychology. Um, And the church said, well, we're going to let the world and the devil, that's your stuff. You can deal with that. Right. Um, but we're going to focus on, on our traditional stuff and people's souls. And, and, and so we've got this nicely d- divided up. Um, and, you know, and if they're, and those folks who tune into what's happening inside them and somehow want to connect that into the world, well, that's all witchcraft. So we'll just, right. we'll just burn them. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's kind of bald to describe it that way, but <laughs> hey. Um, it, so it was a very traumatic beginning, and it's created something in the culture of science that I know well, um, where if you traipse at all into that subjective realm, um, you get reminded that you may not be able to get any grants. Uh, you get, I mean, it's it's pretty... Ouch. Yeah, it's pretty clear that, you know... That's not what, if you're going to be a respectable scientist, that's not what you do. Uh-huh. Um, the neuroscientists have been able to go into it because it was kind of their territory and they uh-huh. found their way in. Uh, but there's by now quite a bit of really interesting research around um, out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, um, remote viewing. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a whole variety of stuff that if we weren't so allergic to it, right we would actually recognize it. So I'm not allergic to it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's actually a potential for a great healing, uh, a, a great healing of that core empirical impulse that the sciences were built on to take that same... Because empiricism says experience trumps theory. Mm-hmm. And to take that willingness to say, well, there's some signal here in these experiences that people have been having for thousands of years. Let's better understand that. Yeah. Uh, let's get in there and, and work with it and not just push it away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that opens up the whole, what people would describe as a kind of inner realm. Yeah. But, you know, how much is truly inner with it? I mean, it's, it, anyway, I won't get too far off in it. But that was stone three. Connectedness. Of the universe. Connect, yeah, how connected is the universe? Hmm. And and in that process, discover, including the physical ways, one of the things in the in one of those emails in Bright Future Now, I talk about the way in which the atoms we're now breathing mm-hmm. were breathed by, you know, you name it, Caesar, uh, whoever. Uh, I love that image. Know, that, uh, so our bodies are these constant whirlpools in which all of other life is flowing atoms that have been in other life are flowing through us the atoms didn't die no the atoms and and we within the normal physics you would just say but that's fine they're just these inert bits Mm -hmm. Uh, we have no idea how much trail of consciousness those atoms actually connect with Mm -hmm. Um, maybe nothing but to to presume that we totally know at this point is hubris. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll, yeah, so that's three. That's three. Thank you. Four is um, living as a whole being. And it really looks at what it would be like to live in a culture that was, compared to ours, very greatly detraumatized. And in touch with that connectedness that was there in Stone 3, um, and and in touch with all of ourselves as beings, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of imagine into, well, what would that mean? What would that feel like? What would that look like? Uh, more at the personal level than the outward level, because we'll get to that in the other stones. Um, so the so that's stone four, um, and stone five is whole system economics. And hmm. I love the juxtaposition between those two. <laughs> Because if you're going to live as a whole being, part of it is that you've got to put together the way in that the material life works mm-hmm. and, the, and the economics work. Uh, but there are fresh opportunities that open up if you're not dealing, if you don't have to pay as high a fear tax, which our culture pays a huge fear tax um, at the moment, um, not only in military expenditures, but lots of other places too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whole system economics and then stone six is whole system governance and part of that is that governance is more than government Hmm. you know how do we how do we when you have culture that is this rich co-evolving thing how do you really work with that in a way that helps to steer it Mm -hmm. Um, and then stone seven is something i call street smarts for change agents nice so it's sort of bring it all back down to so you've gone through this journey you've gotten a sense of what's the possible mm-hmm. how now do you put this um, into functional practice mm-hmm. and it's we're already getting into some of that in what's going on in the network mm-hmm. um, but that's fine uh, I, I still expect that eventually we will get around to that seven um, what do you mean stone. we're already getting into what what aspect well, of it? Well, for instance, the, the most recent salon that we had in the network, which was talking about cultural activism okay. as, as contrasted with political activism. Okay. Um, and touches on those street smarts. Mm-hmm. How have the complex adaptive system salons been going? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was kind of the third one of those okay. complex adaptive system salons. So these are the seven foundation stones. So um, it's been 17 years. Right. They're slowly coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, where where are you at? It seems like you, you have a... We basically have done presentations for the first two. Oh, okay. And I'm not... And that's those... Th- the. Th- this, the, for the tools for the journey, there are two presentations. Okay. Uh, the the human operating system and the systems literacy. Right. Ones. Uh, no presentations yet for the others. Uh, whether they will take the form of presentations like what I've done right. or some other form. Which have been presentations that you've recorded, a yeah. video, and then yes. you can see these on the website. Right. They're just freely available at context.org. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are you moving sequentially through these things? Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. at you're at three right now. Right. 
the interconnectedness of the universe. Right. But took a pause mm-hmm. from working on the foundation stones yeah. to build up the network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually envision that the rest of the foundation stones will be more of a collaborative project right. involving people in the network mm-hmm. rather than just me doing my research and yeah. synthes- synthesizing things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably still be involved, but... Uh, mm-hmm. The catalyst, I'm sure. Right. Uh, so when... I, and in uh, 2015, the... End of January 2015, when I'd completed the the systems literacy yeah. presentation, there were two things that were really clear for me. One was I was exhausted. Hmm. Um, you know, this was I couldn't just keep doing it the way I had been. Yeah. Um, and the other was that there was enough material there to start the process of an experiential program. Okay. Which is what Bright Future. Which now is what is. I participated in. Yeah. And, yeah. And. Um, and it was very much oriented towards not just an educational program, but something that, that creates a common ground for a network, uh, uh, among other things, so that I could have more people to play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you needed some. You needed a feedback loop. Yeah. Yeah, right, a real life right feedback loop. Yeah. Well, the the videos uh, and the work that went into the one and two. Mm-hmm mind-blowing mm-hmm. i mean just profound timely deep and um i recommend if anybody's um interested in this i, I highly recommend just going onto the web and taking a look at those because it it really changes your perspective on where we're at mm-hmm. um the the what time is it video mm-hmm. and the the transitions between tribal empire and planetary mm-hmm. that is something that i think about every day mm-hmm. now i mean it really provides a foundation for right. my thinking in the way that i'm moving through the world now right. um and that we're in this transition time between empire and planetary and with that i was hoping that maybe you could um, provide a quick summary of that like yeah. if, if people were to um because I, I start mentioning this in conversation, mm-hmm. and then um, and then I get, immediately get questions, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which right. which is great because yeah. then you, you engage conversation. Um, but if someone were to say, "Well, what do you what do you mean when you talk about tribal empire and planetary um, eras?" Right. And and where are we at, and why does this matter? Right. So the. I look at culture as uh, through the lens of complex adaptive systems. And that complex adaptive system sounds awfully fancy and academic and all that. What it really means is a group of people where you have a lot of different players who have some level of autonomy from each other. So So each one of those players has some range of choice. And each one is kind of figuring out its next steps. Uh, And uh, in that process, the way that culture functions can evolve, and it has this kind of co-evolutionary quality where one person makes a change here, and then that stimulates another person to make a corresponding change, and then you get a third change, and then you get back to the first person who then changes yet again. 
um, and it all sort of moves together. Sometimes. But there are other times when the culture is very stable. So you have these stable times and you have these transitionary times. We had a really long, as we as humanity had a really long stable time back uh, before about 10 or 11,000 years ago when essentially all of humanity was in, um, well, was, was doing hunting and gathering. Mm-hmm. And so living in relatively small bands, your world was your tribe. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's the tribal era. Uh, the, the sort of academic term is the Paleolithic, the old Stone Age. Um, this is before any cities, before any writing, before anything like that. Um, so that's one big, long cultural period with some pretty stable characteristics to it, uh, such as that regardless of where you look in the world, people are making their living, if you will, by foraging, by hunting, and by gathering. Um, that's what people did. Uh, and uh, their primary, their, their high-tech form of communication was speech hmm. in songs and poems, but, uh, you know, just speaking. Um, and the way in which they were, the societies were organized were all around kinship. Uh, both actual kinship and, and kinship as a metaphor. And they related to the world around them as, you know, all Native Americans talk about all my relations. Hmm. So it's, you know, the, the, the deer and the buffalo and, and all of that is, is seen in kinship terms. So there's this very strong quality of kinship that serves as the unifying factor. It doesn't matter whether you're looking in... Um, Ancient China, ancient Africa, ancient Middle America, um, it's all the same pattern. Somewhere 12,000 years ago or so, we get the start of agriculture. And it doesn't matter exactly when that happens. What's important is that you shift from a somewhat nomadic existence to a, a settled existence. When you're doing agriculture, you're investing in your local soil, and so you start to become tied to the land, and you can support a larger population concentration. So you, you get these communities that start to grow and grow in size. And, there's, and so we head into this transition time when the coevolution is happening. Um, population growth happens. Um, and as you get larger settlements, the, uh, our minds are only able to really know personally maybe a couple hundred people. You start pushing it beyond that and you will slip into seeing other people as um, examples of categories. Hmm. Your, your, your mind just can't, you can't have this the same level of intimate knowledge of, of 2,000 people that you can of 200. So as the settlement size grew, you moved quietly <laughs> But nevertheless, significantly into these, you know, people were identified by their clan or, or other things of this sort. Uh, you also created storable and stealable wealth. That's big. That's big. Um, and, uh, and so there got to be social stratification that happened as well. 
And over a period of a few thousand years, there's all this dynamic that moves you away from where you were in the, those hunting and gathering bands. Moves you eventually significantly away. And by the time, about 5,000 years ago, you get to the point of real cities and the start of writing and military bureaucracies. Okay. Um, you're in a very different world than you were as hunters and gatherers. But you start into another stable period. And that's the empire, agricultural empires. And whether you're talking about ancient Egypt or Sumer or Indus Valley or China or stuff that was going on in Europe or middle America, um, it's all the same pattern. And the, the social organization now is no longer kinship. It's violence-enforced, religiously sanctioned hierarchies. Same thing all over the place. And the main livelihood is agriculture. 90% of the population involved in agriculture primarily is serfs and slaves and, and peasants to some extent. It was an awful lot. Um, and the high-tech form of communication is writing. About 500 years ago, we start into another destabilized transition time with the start of the Renaissance and the emergence of, of some of what went on with trade, the, um, the invention of the, of the printing press, mm -hmm. the, uh, the emergence of the natural sciences. All this happened in the frag politically fragmented area of Europe. Um, there was just as brilliant stuff happening in China, but it, got, it was suppressed from destabilizing hmm. the society. That's interesting. It was happening on the other side of the globe. Yeah, right. But uh, in, in Europe, it was too fragmented to successfully su suppress this genie of innovation okay. that started to emerge. Um, and so that led this process in which people got more choice in their lives. Um, there was... A, Old structures got shifted, uh, and you still have a lot of the patterns that were there in the empire era at one level, but we also have new emerging patterns. So if you, if you look at our present time as still in the transition and look at it as a double exposure and peel back the empire characteristics, we know that there's still, you know, violence-enforced hierarchies, and we, <laughs> we know that there's still people involved in agriculture, clearly. But today, the, there is no one main livelihood. We have moved into a world that is much, much more diverse in terms of how people function. Um, the high-tech form of communication now involves a lot more visual aspects to it, um, as, as well as the written uh, and kinesthetic aspects. Too. So we're getting back to the whole brain. Um, and the basis of social organization that isn't hierarchy is much more network and consensual collaboration, hmm. basically, is what's emerging. Uh, and if you look at the, the startup businesses, the businesses that, that really fly, there's a lot more collaborative spirit there than, than this sort of rigid command and control hierarchy. Uh, you don't get the kind of vibrant, innovative activity out of putting people into a, a rigid command and control structure. Um, so the, you know, where are we headed? 
in the into the planetary era. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm I'm giving you all this stuff because I think it's important to understand that that we're looking at deep system changes. Uh, the uh, that are not easy to turn over in an election. It's not like redoing the executive orders. Right. The stuff is much deeper than that. Um, and so we are... One of the things I'm working on, actually, for a TED Talk that I'll be doing in February... Oh, great. Um, TEDx. Um, it, and the current working title for that is In the Tipping Zone Between Dominance and Harmony. Hmm. And when I say tipping zone, you've probably heard of the idea of tipping point. Yes, read the book. Right. So, but if you look closely enough, bring your magnifier, mm-hmm. it's always a zone. It's not actually a point. Mm. Um, and so dealing with one of these big historical trends, when you live through it, it feels like this, you know, whitewater. Right. Um, of, uh, of turbulence that is going on mm-hmm. because we're in the tipping zone. We, we've had... 5,000 years, basically, when the six, the obvious success strategy was might makes right. Mm-hmm. The, you know, you wanted to be the dominator if you wanted to succeed in a worldly way. Um, you know, all kinds of examples of that. And with that went the idea that society was the real power, the real stuff. If you're going to be a realist, the real stuff in society was all about hierarchies. Uh-huh. And so you, if you wanted to be powerful, you got to a high spot. Get with the program. Get with the program. Defeat the others. Rise up in the hierarchy. Become yeah. Win. Win. Right. Um, that works in situations where uh, people have relatively limited choice. It worked really well in the empire era because people were so bound to the land. Uh, so you could capture them basically. Right. They were trapped. Um, and so you could impose what you wanted to them uh, in a coercive way. As the market economy came in more and more and people had more choice, that it began to loosen up somewhat. Today, in the most vibrant parts of the economy, the people who really generate value have a lot of freedom of movement. You can't exactly get them to work by coercing them, forcing them into this cubicle and say, you will produce the next great invention. <laughs> it, it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So the leading edge in the culture, the growing edge, the place where health is, is all in being a good collaborator, um, not being a dominator. Because when people have choice, they're going to go away from the dominators right. and gravitate to the good collaborators. Mm-hmm. And I would say that if you're going to be a good collaborator, you need to know how to embody what I will call the three harmonies. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to embody the harmony within yourself. You need to be able to embody a harmony with others. And and out of that, you need to embody a harmony with nature. Um, And when you can do all those three things, then you are magnetic in terms of the, you know, people want to connect with you, they want to work with you, they want to do things with you. If you don't have harmony within, but seem to have harmony with others, that lack of harmony within will catch you. Mm -hmm. If you only focus in the quiet of your room 
on your harmony within, but then walk out into a public setting and get a, a, outraged, um, then you're only dealing with a certain kind of harmony within. Uh, you need to be able to make it real in, in all aspects of your life. And if, if you have both of that harmony within and the harmony with others, I, my experience is it's just a natural consequence that you appreciate the generosity of nature and find yourself wanting to work with nature in a, in a collaborative way rather than wanting to dominate yourself over it. Uh, so the, what that used to be, embodying the three harmonies used to be this lovely um, idealistic aspiration, but it wasn't a way to get worldly success. You know, you could do it, you know, and you could feel good about it personally, and maybe there were small groups that could do it, but, you know, get real. Uh, what people don't understand is that we have now moved far enough along in the tipping zone so that the route to success is through the three harmonies. The route to external worldly success is by getting better and better at the three harmonies. And that's increasingly where we're going. So if you want to skate to where the puck will be, forget the dominator thing. Learn to be really good with the harmony within, harmony with others, and the harmony with nature. Those are the people who are going to thrive in the world both today and the world that's emerging. And Donald Trump is providing such a fabulous example of what a failure the dominator approach is in today's world. You know, he's, he's a caricature of the dominator mentality and has attracted around him all the folks who gravitate towards that. Um, and the rest of the world is fleeing mm -hmm. from that. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know quite how the Trump era will play out but at least at this point, mm -hmm. um, it, it ain't what it used to be, you know, the, in terms of being able to be the strong man who comes on. And, right. You know, it, it's in, in our highly networked world, um, you, you, it just doesn't play that way anymore. <laughs> that is such good news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is such good news that we're at a point in time where, yeah, we might be kind of in the whitewater right now right. and it's it's turbulent but we can see these patterns and what we know now and what you're saying is if if you can find a harmony within and a harmony with others and you're a good collaborator that success or progress right will will be made in in a way that actually is beneficial for not only you but for others and for nature right i love how you you brought the nature piece into it mm -hmm. because i feel like the um environmental movement is um often this thing where it's like trying to get people to focus their gaze on the environment like, mm -hmm. hey, wait, waving their hands, like, pay attention. Things aren't going so good for the environment over here, mm -hmm. you know. But what you're saying is, no, 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 this is this is almost a, a result of just doing the work of finding your own inner harmony and harmony with other people that it produces um, a an appreciation for the natural world. Right. And it it's like... It, the um, culmination of the um, the equation 
right. you know, that says, okay, n- now, now we can all be in harmony. And I, and I think too, that, that eco perspective is kind of the, a broader, con- broader consciousness that mm-hmm. we're moving towards this, um, right. this is all inclusion. Man, that's the best news I've heard in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really is. I'm, how do I say this? I'm serious about bright future now. Mm-hmm. You know that it's there are all kinds of ways in which it's as much as the media might tell a different story because they're focused on what sells, right? Um, and they're focused on a shorter term, mm-hmm. and they're looking at it through an, an basically an empire lens, uh, so they can't really see the planetary era aspects yet Mm -hmm. but when you start to see the planetary aspects and look at the longer trends yeah um yeah there's we have a lot of work to do yeah but the wind is at our backs Mm -hmm. Um, and just realizing that and then being able to step into it uh and the you know and i will say that you know bright future now in many ways is designed to focus on both the harmony within the harmony with others and the tools to be able to build the harmony with nature mm-hmm. um, in, in a practical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do, we, how do we, recognizing that there are no environmental problems, there are only environmental symptoms of human problems, how do we change the human structures? Right. Uh, how do we go to the project drawdown list of, you know, a hundred different things and move on them? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, fortunately people are already moving on yeah. them. But if we, if we chose to, we could turn what's happening with climate change around much, much faster mm-hmm. than most people realize. Um, it's just all those folks out there saying, no, no, that could never happen. No, no, no. That, uh, we, you know, no. Because they're stuck. Yep. Um, in both, in some cases, special interest, self-interest. Mm. Um, and in other cases, just not having the imagination to see what's possible. Right. A few minutes ago, you said you mentioned the 80-20 um, rule. I don't know if it's a rule or just a, an idea, but um, I read that on your website too, and that was really helpful. And if I understood it correctly, the 20% is like the, the amount of energy that we need to spend on resisting those right. things um, that are um, the injustices mm-hmm. in the world. And, and then the 80% is the wind at our backs, is those things that are already moving in the direction of positive change. Right. And those are the things that we, we should focus 80% of our energy on the positive things and right. not forget about the resistance, but um, as, as just sort of a general proportion. Mm-hmm. For me, that's helpful because I the resistance movement, yes, I'm definitely down <laughs> with the resistance. However, it doesn't motivate me. Mm-hmm. It 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 is it comes from the same energy as like digging in my heels, right? And I mean, even the word "resist" is like right. stop. You right. know, don't. Right. And it doesn't have any sort of um, uh, energy that's uh, that's moving me towards creativity or innovation or those mm-hmm. things that we we need to focus on that eighty percent. Yeah. Well, in you know, in many ways, that that whole Trump phenomenon and the mm-hmm. stuff associated with that is a reaction 
to all the cultural changes that have been going on in the last few decades, mm-hmm. um, uh, many of which are moving us towards the planetary era. Uh, and people who don't like the greater range of inclusion, uh, inclusiveness, mm-hmm. uh, people who are accustomed to a more hierarchical social structure and don't like the way in which people who are in that category, those people, right. are now showing up in place, other places in the hierarchy. How can that be? Mm-hmm. We've got to get those things back in order. Um, so they're reacting to the success of these changes. Right. The best way to actually get beyond where we are now is to keep those changes moving. Mm-hmm. And most of those changes are things that move and let me put it this way, where there are lots of opportunities to move forward that don't involve political change, but are uh, in the broader arena of cultural change. Mm -hmm. Um, People adopting new beliefs, new ways of doing things, etc. And yeah, so it's, if you wind up getting diverted from the from building the new yeah in order to resist the resistance i mean because they're really the resistance right if you know what i mean yes they're Uh, the resistance to the movement to the planetary air right yes um and so it's just it wastes time wastes Mm -hmm. energy which is not to say that there's because there's real damage that they can do there is a certain amount of the saying the necessary no yeah, which is the resistance to to sort of help to minimize the damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to be too categorical about this, uh, but that whatever energy you feel you can free up to keep building the new, and when you're building the new, it it's not dramatic. It isn't going to make the newspapers. It takes often years mm-hmm. for the real consequences to show up. But if you look at things not on a month or week long scale, mm-hmm. but look on a, on a decade long scale, that building the new has more sustainable, meaningful consequences than the repeated efforts at resistance, mm-hmm. which just keep coming back and back in the same slots. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like you said, wasted energy. Right. Uh, resisting progress. We're not moving forward. Right. With providing our energy there. So we need to get people to shift their energy. Right. And different people are in different situations. Right. You know, I mean, some people really are called to be on that front line doing that resistance. And I honor that. I think that's fabulous. But there will be a lot of people who what's available to them is the opportunity to somehow or another do more in themselves and in the systems and people around them to work on that, embody those three harmonies. Yeah. You know, uh, and if you keep doing that, and even in the midst of the resistance, you better get more harmony within, um, or you will burn out quickly. Yeah. How much of the um, the inner harmony is a surrender to to kind of a new way? Because when I think about, okay, well, I want to be, um, I want to have an inner harmony or I want to be a harmonious person. Mm -hmm. You know, I I can uh, find myself in a 
trap of like applying the same sort of mindset. Well, is that would be if I do that, then I will get that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the ego kind of creeps right in there and goes, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be a harmonious person. And then, um, I'm going to accomplish these sort sort of outcomes. And it, uh, it sort of plays against itself. Yeah. Uh, what would your response to that be? Well, the, I think that the harmony in a couple, in our sort of intimate personal relations, is a good model for understanding aspects of the harmony within, hmm. in that there needs to be a certain amount of affection and uh, tolerance, uh, recogni- recognizing the different. So, so what I'm saying is that for the different parts inside you, mm-hmm. and we're all much more complex beings than our culture normally gives credit for. So, uh, and a lot of the lack of harmony within is conflict between different parts of, you know, the, the part of us that wants to succeed at work and the part of us that um, really feels the need to be playful and the part of us that um, is shy about being out there with people and another part that um, really likes it being being gregarious. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just because of our our whole growth experience, we we wind up with an accumulation of what in the course we talk about as subpersonalities, mm-hmm. uh, and. In order for those subpersonalities to be to be in harmonious relationship with each other, they they need to hear each other, just as in a couple you need to be able to really hear each other, mm-hmm. and you need to have some empathy, even if you don't agree, you, s- you still need to be able to have that empathy. Uh, so it's those I think are are really important aspects of being able to develop that harmony within. And it's in that process, it helps if there's some humility. Right. And the humility then goes along. It's, there is a kind of acceptance, and uh, you, can, you can say surrender, but it isn't, again, to not get too categorical. The, the way that I look at co-creation, uh-huh is that we all, as conscious beings, we only control a portion of what happens around us. Mm -hmm. But we still have to show up to do our part. So being either, approaching things either from the frame that I'm in total control, Mm -hmm. master of my destiny, you're going to run into problems with that. Mm -hmm. Or if you say, well, I, you know, what can I do? I'm just being carried along by the stream. Uh, <laughs> you can run into problems with that, too. Right. Um, so it's that willingness to show up in the fullness of who you are, mm-hmm. knowing that that's only part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the fullness of who you are involves all that complexity inside you mm-hmm. uh, that needs to be embraced and not suppressed. Yeah, I think my mind is going to the uh 
the beginning of our conversation when you mm-hmm. talked about spiritual traditions, mm-hmm. you know, um, all kind of uh, coming together and in um, some sort of unified way of, a, of, a, of approaching our existence. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, when you mention humility, I really feel like humility is a step towards faith. Mm-hmm. And having faith in uh, something mm-hmm. that will happen, um, that is out of your control, yet you're informing it. Right. And I, I think that's yeah. similar to to how how you were describing that. Yeah, and I, I do want to say, relative to the traditions, yeah, my sense is that the next step, historically, culturally, mm-hmm. there, is well, a couple of next steps. One of them is going to be. Uh, moving away from the competitive sense of exclusivity and um, appreciating what the other traditions provide uh, and uh, but still being able to say and this is some this tradition speaks to me right um, and so not needing to meld them all together um, but more having a recognition that different maps, Right. On, on the same territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, someone once told me that uh, about they, they got a bunch of theologian types mm-hmm. together from different religions, yeah. and they argued all over the place. And then they brought together no. a bunch of <laughs> contemplative uh, you know, monk types yeah. from the various different traditions, uh-huh. and they had a great time together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, in part, that's because the monk types actually have some experience, um, and they're, they're it's not, in practice. Yeah, they're, and so they could recognize in the other the 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 commonality of experience, right? Which is foundational yeah. to empathy, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it's. I think as we move into a new relationship with what we think of as spirituality or religion, mm-hmm. it's going to be in some ways simultaneously simpler and more profound. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, no, if we no longer need to have all of that political trapping, right. You know, we, we no longer need to be supporting the, the, the empire, mm-hmm. basically, in the religious structure, um, then that's going to provide a lot of clarification. Mm-hmm. And freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, um, I'm feeling like we're getting toward the end here. Mm-hmm. I do want to give you a chance to uh, just talk about Bright Future now. Sure. Because um, we've talked about a, a lot of the different things that are mentioned mm-hmm. in, in Bright Future now, but just to give people a synopsis of, right. of what that is, um, if they're interested. Sure. So the the, the sort of... This is a test, Robert. Right. The, the <laughs> out, it is. It's a challenge. Uh, the, the outward aspects yeah. are that Bright Future now is a, a course that makes use of online... Um, tools 
So we have people all over the world involved. Um, it involves morning emails. It involves interaction with video conferencing, video chats. Um, it's set up so there's a lot of human scale interaction uh, to it. We limit the cohort size to 21 people. And then within that, we have things like triads. So there's a lot of interactive stuff at the same time that we go through what you could describe as core inner and outer skills and tools that are needed for, the, for someone in the 21st century who wants to be actively engaged in helping to move the culture forward. Um, so the, the first week is about self-awareness and self-compassion. Uh, the second week is about getting beyond categorical thinking and being able to see the world in terms of territories and maps. Uh, and, and this brings us towards systems thinking. And the third week is around child development and adult character, looking at a lot of the common variety, sort of garden variety um, traumas that almost everyone carries and how we can uh, both move ourselves personally out of that, but also move the culture out of that. The fourth week is around systems and we apply it particularly to, we use the example of your own habits as a system and how by understanding the, the dynamics of your habit system, you can figure out where are the good places to intervene and that's not just for yourself personally, but groups have habits, institutions have habits, cultures have habits, relationships have habits. If you know how to change your own personally, you can change the others. And then the fifth week is around collaboration and skills for collaboration, things like decision-making and leadership. And the sixth week is what we call from vision to reality. And so it's how to actually take something and manifest it. So it has a certain amount of project management stuff, but also other things that build on the first five weeks. Um, so it's, I don't know anywhere that weaves together all those into a system. And uh, six weeks may sound like a long time, but it goes by pretty fast. Um, and, and, and that's intentional to be able to make the linkages, the, the, the bridging between those, all those different pieces, uh, all in the service of supporting you as an individual to be a better change agent in these times, and also to support groups because it creates common ground. So if you have a group of people who've done this together, then they have all these wonderful tools to be able to work with each other and the course is the gateway into the Bright Future Network. Essentially, everyone who has taken the course then becomes part of the Bright Future Network. And in the network, we're taking it in a more freeform way, but we are building up our capacity to support one another as we act as change agents. Great. Yeah, my experience was that the, the content is really deep and profound, and it comes at you quickly. Because you're getting it every morning via email. Mm -hmm. um, and you have some opportunity to talk about the content in your triad mm -hmm. or in with your ally. Um, Kai, if you're out there. Right. What's up, buddy? <laughs> and, and then on the weekends, there are these group meetings uh, where everybody um, comes together. So plenty of opportunity to interact. Um, 
but yeah, it comes at you quickly for six weeks and it kind of flies by. And then, um, the network, it seems like, um, sort of fertile ground for new ideas Mm -hmm. and uh, people are coming up with new ideas and new projects that have come out of sort of the process of the six weeks and they're actually implementing them in and uh, testing them out and and making a go at it with the support of the people who have these some or the first two foundation stones right (laughs) so we've got two out of the seven and we're making a go for it but i highly recommend this for um for everyone mm-hmm. alive, if you're alive out there, yeah. <laughs> um, these will create a great context for you to understand um, not only where we are in um, in time, mm-hmm. in the space-time continuum, but mm-hmm. um, also culturally as as well as some of the very practical things that we can do as individuals to to work on to create the three harmonies that'll help us all create a more graceful transition to the planetary era. Right. Right. Isn't right. that, isn't that the mission the or the vision, vision or? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the, 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 the vision is very much that we are moving to the planetary era and the challenge is how gracefully will we do it? The m- metaphor here is that there is a birth underway. We get to be midwives uh, and we get to influence, uh, you know, is it, it, births can be awful. Uh, you wind up with a dead baby and a dead mother uh, at the one extreme. And in another extreme, it can be an ecstatic experience. Uh, we're not going to be at either pole, but we get to have some choice about how much scarring is left by this transition and, and how graceful and how quick can it be and other things like that. That To me, that's the real calling for this time and this generation or generations that are alive today is to really do what we can to make this transition to be as smooth, graceful, and um, I want to say quick, but it's we don't want to force it too fast. It, it needs to have its time, but in, in that sort of thing. Yeah. So I do want to just um, as, uh, say here that the next, the next course starts October 7th. We do them seasonally. There's a winter, spring, fall, uh, summer, uh, fall, courses um, and uh, you can find out about the course at context.org mm-hmm. perfect um, context.org yeah you, and you can find all of those articles too yeah. that Robert was uh, mentioning and definitely go on there and um, watch the videos uh, the what time is it video um, will give you a great kind of foundation uh, mm-hmm. for all this material well, uh, thanks again. Yeah. For well, having you. Yeah, yeah. This is great. Uh, I appreciate it. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking again and seeing each other mm-hmm. in the network. Yes. Thank all you. right. All right. Good. Bye, everyone.